These are Grindstaff Publishing Audio Files. Room to Rome, Chapter 13, Italy The sun woke me early from my bottom bunk, and once my eyes cleared I could see the Austrian Alps out of my window and couldn't help but smile. Before long I was walking through the morning chill toward the train depot and realized clocks all over Salzburg were an hour behind mine. Still in my morning days, I shook it off, and only upon being handed my train ticket did I fully accept the time difference. With a quick internet search, I realized Europe dealt with daylight saving time on different days in the U.S. All the Austrian clocks were correct, and I was not. The train pulled into the station as punctual as I had grown accustomed. I found a vacant compartment, and we were off on our voyage to Italy. In the year before embarking on the trip, I had taken notes of places people recommended, ranking them by the enthusiasm each felt and the stories they told. One of the top three was, take a train through the Alps. As a train rumbled alongside those very Alps, my mind began fluttering with what was to come. With luck still on my side, my compartment had remained empty, allowing me the full use of each seat, both coffee trays, and unimpeded access across the hall to the large side window. I took advantage of all of it, and as we traveled through the mountains, I raced from side to side, taking photos, pressing my face against the window like a child, and watching the Austrian countryside slide past like a film. There were small towns with expansive bridges, churches placed elegantly by themselves with nothing around, and snow-capped peaks reaching jagged toward the blue sky, all gleaming and glistening in the chilled air, ready for my eyes to take them in. After many interesting stares from my fellow passengers, I decided at best to settle into my cabin and take a break from my canine-like treatment of their lands. The rocking of the train and the chances spread out uninterrupted was too much for my tired head to handle, and I was soon asleep. In what seemed like a few minutes, I woke and through rubbed eyes looked out the window of the still-moving train. The landscape was entirely different. What used to be sharp mountains gave way to vineyards sprawling across rolling hills. Grays turned to greens, stone to grapes, and the architecture smoothed and looked relaxed in comparison to its neighbor to the northeast. Italy was upon me and it was obvious, obvious in a way that both stunned and awed me. The people who were boarding the train had also changed considerably. Skin grew darker and hair wavier. Women who were once bundled in coats and pants transitioned into flowing dresses. A young woman with black hair and everything I had expected Italian to sound like entered my compartment and we talked about where we were each heading. After silence met the two of us, I caught myself staring out the window at the encroaching water. Like a kind of mirage, the water came closer and clearer. Buildings began to appear and before I knew it, the city of Venice was within sight. The feeling like that of the Denmark to Germany travel, the train was cruising atop a bridge over water. With a halt, the occupants of the train slowly marched off. I went through the train terminal and found myself looking out over what could only be described as beautiful madness. Venice was full of life. Water from canals was splashing upon walkways with the passing of gondolas carrying travelers of all nationalities. People were absolutely everywhere, following along walkways, going over small archways, in and out of corridors between buildings which seemed so old and many of them leaning to a noticeable degree. Tugging on my backpack straps and guessing which way my hostel lay, I turned left, entered into the throng of lost tourists, and shuffled. I had never seen anything like it in my life. It was like being in a foreign film. The canals were how I pictured them, the people, the buildings, the accents, the chaos. It was like it should have been, quintessential Venice. 
Not caring about time, I let myself wander. If I got tired of following the crowd, I would turn down a random alley and take in the daily life of those who live in that weird chaotic paradise. More than not, I was met with a dead end due to the walkway leading to water. I turned around, entered the pack of people, and kept walking. Before long, I was in the middle of the city at Piazza San Marco, with thousands of people. The buildings were beautiful, but I couldn't appreciate it with all the people shouting and posing for photos and bumping into one another. Frustrated, I got to the side of the square and tried to get my bearings. With little luck, I found directions on where to head and left the throng of people thinking what a labyrinthine brute Venice was and was grateful upon finding my hostel situated directly over canals in the heart of the city. The hostel was in a superb location but was cheap, which meant the inside was not the best, but it didn't matter. I was going to sleep above the canals of Venice. Darkness was upon the city and as the crowds began to die down, I ventured out to try to find something to eat. Without much hassle, I came across a small wood-fire pizza spot with Italian men bickering between themselves. I ordered a pizza, found a cheap bottle of wine next door, and was soon consuming both at a frantic pace while sitting above the canals with the perfect Italian autumn breeze, wafting music, accents, and the smell of food from all directions. I sat there and took in the magic of it all. That morning, I had woken up in the shadow of the Austrian Alps, and with only a train ride, I had transported to an entirely different world. That is what cheap travel is about. It isn't about comfort or spending money on gourmet foods or expensive hotels. It is about living like some kind of homeless drifter, staying at the cheapest hostels, suffering through the worst transportation all so we can see as much as possible and live as much as we can, squeezing every ounce of life from each minute of the day, not taking anything for granted, and experiencing as much as we can. The bottle of wine went down smooth and the pizza fast. How lucky was I to be living in that moment, taking it all in and wanting more. The second day in Venice started early at a coffee shop next to a canal. In great comparison to the previous month in the north, Italy was warm and the sunshine thawed me out to great benefit. I watched people go about their day, young lovers holding hands, basking in the romance of the city, and old men on boats cursing at each other in Italian. Wandering through the city, I tried to avoid areas with the most people. Gondola operators laughed jovially over cigarettes. Street hagglers barked at tourists. A peculiar old man ran a bookstore as water splashed up from a canal and people sang from the innards of all manner of shops. It was a kind of paradise to be an observer of such a fascinating life. Night came in the same way as before, and I ate pizza over the canal while a bottle of wine soon disappeared. Bologna is a city quite different from Venice, but not any less interesting. Having been dropped off in the business district, I walked through a typical big city scene to get to my hostel. Upon arriving, a little old Italian woman who was extremely kind and spoke broken English showed me my room. It was a lively hostel, much in the same way the hostel in Dansk Poland had been. Young people were talking, laughing, sharing stories about their travels. It was fun and maintained my euphoria after leaving such an exhilarating place like Venice. After a bit of research, I set out looking for the sights around Bologna. I passed the towers of Bologna, walked around the Piazza Maggiore, and looked up at the Fountain of Neptune, which all impressed me, but soon I tired of the crowds around the sights and wanted to find an English bookstore. Unlike the city's previous, Bologna is a university city with a booming intellectual scene and because of this, bookstores are quite easy to find. On my way to the first one, on my list, I began noticing flyers posted on walls with revolutionary symbols. As I got closer to the university district, they grew more numerous and once I entered into a square in the heart of the district, students were in pockets with signs in Italian, both enough symbolism I could make out what the point was. Revolution. Not fully understanding, but also not feeling threatened, I searched the bookstore and went back to my hostel, intrigued by the scene. That night, the hostel kitchen was busy with all of its occupants gathered with cheap wines and meals made from scratch waiting to converse. 
At one point, we all went around the room with a sheet of paper and wrote down where we were from. In the end, there were 10 of us and 8 nationalities. Chinese, Turkish, French, Australian, Slovakian, Spanish, Argentinian, and me. The night raged on with each of us sharing our wine and beer, food and desserts, stories of travel and ideas on religion and politics, the revolutionaries and anarchists of the university, and what it meant to be alive. Magic happened in that small hostel kitchen, a magic I will never forget. My second day in Bologna acted as a rest day. It's the kind of day most travel blogs and books don't talk about. Laundry, emails back home, sorting through photos, chatting with friends, and venturing only as far as the nearest market for meals. Not exciting days, but when traveling for months, they are needed. The third day started slow. A few girls were having a rest day after having traveled from the west of Italy, and we talked about what there was to see from our experience. Without hesitation, they told me to visit the Cinque Terre region along the northwestern coast. They assured me I wouldn't be disappointed. Jotting it down in my notebook, I ventured out back down to the university district, grabbed some pizza, and headed back for an early night at the hostel. One of the people who was most talkative from two nights previous, an early 30s Turkish guy with a gloriously thick and well-groomed beard, asked me if I wanted to join his friend, a Turkish girl about my age, and some others at a bar for drinks. Trusting the guy, I obligingly walked to the bar. The bar was like any bar. We got drinks and sat on the sidewalk in the warm autumn air. Before long, three Italian guys in their late 20s sat down. They introduced themselves to me, and the conversation took off like an explosive. As soon as they found out I was an American, they started asking questions, not in any kind of aggressive way, but in the way college intellectuals converse with one another. I hadn't engaged in talks like that for some time, and it lit a fire under my ass when we talked about all manner of politics, religion, the Italian president, the American presidential candidates, and in what seemed like their usual main topic, anarchy. Without outright saying it, the three Italian guys were anarchists who didn't like the way their country was being ran, and they were eager to protest that view as loud as they could. They talked about their weekly free dinners to the city, free concerts, clothing donation boxes, and the charity they were doing through the university. The guys were radicals, but they seemed to have good heads on their shoulders and I was intrigued by them. After a couple of beers, the guys asked if I wanted to join the group for a late night concert. The cute Turkish girl grabbed my hand and tugged on it. I couldn't resist. The conversation I had just took place in was too amazing. The six of us walked through the lamp-lit streets, through bad-looking neighborhoods, across railroad tracks and bridges, and finally came to what could only be described as a punk rock charity center. A loud, clanky punk band was roaring on stage, and people of all different styles were walking around with beers and food. We found a table, and the Turkish girl asked if I was hungry. She left and brought back noodles with white sauce and a beer. I tried to pay her, but it was free. One of the community events put on by whatever organization the anarchists were a part of. One group joined a bigger group, and we all started talking about the same things as before. Looking around, I was the only American at the venue. It was the first time the idea really came to my head. I didn't feel threatened, but felt welcomed. The conversation was so rich, and the people I met were smart, organized, and passionate. The kind of people who really could change the world. At around 2 in the morning and after numerous beers, my two Turkish friends and I walked back to the hostel. We talked about our plans for the future, the lives we each had back home, how interesting it was we had all met and were in that one place at that one time. It was a strange night and probably the most intellectually stimulating of my entire trip. My first impression of Florence was not great. The bus from Bologna had been an hour late and the drive, although short, was uneventful and traffic was congested. Once off the bus, I was met with throngs of tourists and vendors, and all I wanted was to get to my hostel to relax. It was one of those days. Even when on the trip of a lifetime and in the seat of Tuscany, a traveler still experiences the blues. 
Meandering through the streets, I took in the warm weather and blue skies, the shops with amazing smelling food and eavesdropped endlessly on the multi-ethnic chatter of tourists all around me, but I couldn't shake the feeling of not being impressed. I expected so much from the seat of the Renaissance, the home of the masters. Just as my head began to lower from fatigue, I saw it. Like some kind of medieval skyscraper that stood alone in a square, jutting up in all directions with a shining white stone traced with reds and greens, topped with a giant dome which gave the complex its name, the Duomo, or the Florence Cathedral. I hadn't noticed, but my mouth was agape, literally in the stunning magnificence of the building. Reinvigorated with excitement, I walked around the complex a couple of times and set off in a different direction. It didn't matter which. In quick succession, I walked through the statue-laden corridor of the Uffizi Gallery with the great fingers on either side, came out overlooking the Ponte Vecchio, a bridge complex from the Renaissance era, turned and stood gaping at the Piazza della Signora with its fountain dictated to Neptune, replica of the David plus a myriad of statues strewn about like common bushes or lawn ornaments. It was embarrassing how unimpressed I was only an hour before, and now I stood in the heart of Tuscany, looking at architecture that was as mind-blowing as anything I had seen up until that point. Every inch of that city is astounding, but with dusk nearing, I wanted to get high. It had become a kind of goal upon the arrival to each new city, get to the highest point possible without having to pay, which normally meant a natural area and taking the view. Florence was no different, and soon I was standing at the Piazza Michelangelo with, with musicians playing softly, another reproduction of David standing tall in the center of the square, and the city lights twinkling in the calm sunset of late October. Morning came and the quiet coffee shop near my hostel helped ready me for the day. I had not realized it before coming to Florence, but Pisa was only a quick train ride away. Taking a detour through the Uffizi Gallery, trying to find the statue of Leonardo da Vinci but failing, I made my way to the bustling train terminal. The train was late, as was normal in Italy, but soon we were in Pisa. I followed the herd of tourists through the shopping district, across the Arno River, and into the Pisa Cathedral complex. All the pictures I'd ever seen of the Leaning Tower of Pisa have shown only that. So when I stood at the entrance of the complex and noticed there was an entire cathedral, in addition, I felt beside myself with embarrassment. Tuscany was breaking all kinds of long-held beliefs for me. Beliefs that I realized were based on tourists traveling to foreign lands, taking a photo, then using that one image to define an entire region. As expected, people were strewn everywhere. Most were with a group, each person trying to get the most unique photo of themselves posing with the Leaning Tower usually stumbling from the difficulty but having a great time. After walking around the complex, being sure to give the cathedral its fair amount of time, I came back to the tower, took a few selfies, then wound my way out of the area, smiling in the blue skies with all the rest of the tourists. Not wanting to just come to Pisa for the tower, I strolled along the Arno River, meandering through some ruins spread throughout the city, and ate pizza at a local restaurant. Making my way back to the train station, I started seeing people dressed in costumes. It was Halloween! Back in Florence, more and more people of all ages kept popping up with different masks and outfits. Some were children, others were my age. All were out having a good time. I celebrated the day with a bottle of cheap wine back in my hostel, talking to fellow tourists. And in the night, looking into the Cinque Terre region everyone kept bringing up. My last day in Florence was full of wandering around, taking as much of the city in as possible. Tiring in the main areas, I ventured off into the residential region and beyond to places where I could look one way and see the Duomo and the rest of the inner city, but looking the other way, see Tuscany and all its beauty. Trying to circle back, I came across a large fort complex and soon realized it was free admission. The Forte de Belvedere can only be described as sprawling and the next couple hours were spent traversing its grounds, which included the Giardino di Bobobli, 
the gardens, its statues, and fantastic views of the taller buildings in the city center. I was amazed to find it and spent my time looking out at Florence, ready to leave but not ready to say goodbye. Morning came at 4.30 as my hard-parting roommate snored below me. The cold air sent chills as I walked through the streets which had been so busy in my times on them before. Drapes of gypsy carts who had been selling cheap goods from street corners waved ethereal in the wind and the Duomo Square was deserted save for a policeman and a drunk stumbling on the other side. The train station was alive but anemic, and my train was late as usual. Trekking along the coastline in the early morning hours dissolved any animosity I had about waking up as early as I did. Coastal cities passed by, decreasing in size as the rocky shoreline began being dotted with colorful buildings in the distance. With a few people left on the train, we arrived at Rio Maggiore, a quaint coastal town built on a hill with pastel-colored buildings bursting on either side of a main walkway. It was like walking through a postcard from a time long ago. There were no vehicles, the crowds hadn't arrived yet, local vendors were beginning to start their days with sandwich boards and Italian chattering and laughing. Without much difficulty, I found my hostel and was walked through a labyrinth of alleys, steep steps across a courtyard into an apartment-style room. Intrigued by the layout of the city, I quickly found my way down to the blue water, with rocks jutting out into it and people lazily lounging in the morning sun. Grabbing only the essentials, I left my hostel and wound my way back through the alleys and onto a train bound from the northernmost city in the Cinque Terre region. Monterosso feels much more like a resort city as opposed to the fishing village via Rio Maggiore gives off. Nonetheless, the weather was superb and I trekked around the city for a bit, before getting anxious about what lie ahead. Numerous people had told me to hike the Cinque Terre Trail, and after much reading I understood why. Linking the five villages, Monterosa, Vernazza, Corniglia, Monarola, and Rio Maggiore is a trail skirting along the rocky cliffs of the Ligurian Sea. After looking at all the pictures and hearing the personal stories, I bounded up the steep cement steps ascending above Monterosa beginning the hike. The one thing missing from my backpacking adventure had been nature. Back home, I am an avid hiker, an all-around lover of the outdoors. It is rare for me to go long periods of time stuck in a city before I go stir-crazy and have to see trees, mountains, or an ocean. Besides a few exceptions, notably Iceland and the Alps, I have been confined to the cityscapes of some of the finest destinations on the planet. Yet there, cruising onward from Monterosa with the ocean air in my lungs and the alien, to me at least, Italian landscape all around, I was in the zone. It seemed like every few feet I would have to stop and look at the cacti, take a photo of some new angle of the tree, or admire the diversity of people hiking along with me. Luckily, quite few were on the trail that day. I came around a bend and saw Vernazza spread out below me. With the area's characteristic yellows and pinks adorning the buildings, a curving arm of rocks protecting its bay from the sea, and a tower perched above the city was in great contrast with the bright blue water surrounding it. Dipping into Vernazza, I darted down a few alleys before ascending on down the trail. Vineyards sprawled across the hillsides with their winding branches stretching, intertwining with one another in a way which seemed so... Italian. The sky was at its peak of the day and the heat baked the stone steps of the trail and sweat soaked through the beanie I was still wearing. It was probably because of that red wool cap and the ridiculous heat that people would pass and first smile their friendly way, then glance above my eyes and furrow their brow if only slightly. Nothing mattered. The heat, the people, the views. It was all bliss as my hiking boot wrapped feet flew freely across a trail, relishing in the stretching and climbing, dirt, then streams of water, and back to blistering stone. Small shacks would look to be used for wine production dotted the landscape, coming into arm's reach at random points on the trail. I couldn't help but crane my neck to look into the alien buildings with their rusted conveyor belts and hooks and grape-stained buckets. 
The buildings were rustic with their stone walls and antiquated roofs and thin, old windows fragile enough to break at the slightest touch. The grapes and the curled vines were shriveled and their leaves yellowed and spotted with age, lending a foregone beauty and fleeting one of time only weeks previous when those branches yielded such wonderful juices. Afternoon began to wane and the heat began to dissipate as I descended into the final enclave of residence along the Italian shores. With a backpacking traveler's wallet, I couldn't afford any of the wealthy tourist prices and stood longing at the windows of shops and fancy bars with enticing offers for classy drinks with clever names. Instead, I wandered briefly along the cobbles and the pastel-colored buildings, took in the stunning views and watched the bobbing of small boats in the harbor before ascending the steep trail and trekking across the trail for the final leg. Without realizing it, or better say without looking closely at the map in my back pocket, I came to a sign which told the trail visitors the final leg of the trail was closed due to a landslide. An arrogance overtook me and I thought, if only briefly, that assuredly I could find a way around this impasse Within a few steps, I was found to be only human and had to descend to the train station like everyone else. Along the way, I ran into a girl from the Bologna hostel, one who had recommended the very trail I was on. We talked about how she had got to Cinque Terre, and she introduced me to a few friends she had made and had began traveling with. Our new group walked to the train station, the one connecting all five of the small towns together, and waited for our ride back to Rio Maggiore. One group talked for a while about traveling, where we were staying, and how long we would be in Italy, and how we should add each other on social media and meet up sometime later on our journey. With a sunset cast of flame along the horizon, the group dispersed. The others to take selfies in the nirvana, we found ourselves. While I walked toward the shore to try to capture even a fraction of the beauty nature dealt out so effortlessly. The train beckoned and everyone grabbed their heavier-than-they-started packs and kicked off the trail dust from their shoes before dragging their exhaustive bodies onto the locomotive. Upon seeing the landslide sign, I had been pissed at not being able to walk the entirety of the Cinque Terre Trail, but once the train jolted forward and we were floating along the trails of that Italian oceanside, with the sunset a slight sliver and my feet humming with a dull pulse, I was content with the outcome and glad to have experienced what the day had brought. I arrived back to my hostel in complete darkness and was glad to see no one else had taken up residence on any one of the three bunk beds. Having explored my dining options before leaving for the trail, I knew the isolation mixed with the exclusivity of the area meant everything was going to be ridiculously expensive. Instead, I ducked into one of the locally run markets, grabbed cheap red wine from the local vineyards, and two pizzas for the oven. With feet still sore from the hike, I hobbled through the narrow passages of the town, between stone embankments, across a rooftop, and up the tight flight of stairs to my hostel. The cork popped in the wine bottle, and a paper cup was filled to the brim as I clicked on the oven. I heard the gas burning within, but there was no flame. Drinking down my paper cup of wine, I threw the oven pizzas into the microwave, set a random time, and sat on the bed with a refill of red elixir and semi-cold pizza, pouring over a map of Italy and loving life. As midnight approached, I spilled wine on my map, wrote a few paragraphs in my journal, and edited a dozen or so photos. The wine was gone and so was a pizza. The Cinque Terre Trail had been hiked, and one of the most amazing sunsets of my life capped a day full of adventure and beauty. Once again, I was doing what I had sought out to do on the adventure through Europe, to see as much as possible, learn as much as possible, and be present every single day. Sleeping in the next morning, I woke to blue skies and an urge to get high. Pulling out my wine ring stained map of Cinque Terre, I noticed a winding trail reaching away from the main tourist trail, high above Rio Maggiore. Packing a light lunch, I hurried up a steep incline through the vineyards and marshy bogs to a pink church overlooking the city and down the coastline. 
It's quite astonishing the contrast between the jagged rocks jutting from the turbulent ocean and the pastel-colored buildings situated in a seemingly random placement. Hiking this way and that in the blue sky for hours, I looked to the sea and saw gray clouds forming, heading my way. Back in Rio Maggiore, there's a crowd gathering outside a small church with a hearse. A group of maybe 30 mourners wiped tears from their faces and marched behind the hearse as it ascended the cobbled street. I stood off to the side, not wanting to make eye contact with any of the group, but sometimes doing so and seeing sadness and I felt so out of place. There I was intruding on their city, on their day when a loved one passed, and I was there without a care doing exactly what I and only I wanted to do. The sun set that night in a tumultuous way, using the gray clouds to its advantage and scattering its beams. I sat on the edge of the village, near the water, thinking about what the trip meant to me. Everything was happening so fast and I was seeing so much that it was hard to wrap my mind around it all. The funeral got me thinking of mortality and my mind in the clouds demeanor was forcefully brought back to the ground. I didn't really know what I had learned along the trip thus far, nor what I hoped to gain from it in the time to come. The sun greeted me the following morning while on a train in Genova, the thoughts of the night previous still casting gloom on my tired brain. Without much energy, I found my hostel and did the usual. Talked about traveling with roommates, met a girl from California who wanted someone to walk around the city with. We chatted and traveled to the Genova Lighthouse, got pizza and wine, brought it back to the hostel, and indulged in a long conversation about politics and travel with the rest of the hostel folk. The funeral in Rio Maggiore affected me in a way I couldn't shake. Everything seemed trivial. The boasting of where each person had been and where they were going. The superficiality of the girl from California, even the pizza seemed contrived. I was in a bad space going to bed that night, ready for a change. Not wanting to train from Genova to Barcelona, I instead found an overnight ferry across the Ligurian Sea. Walking along the docks, taking in the giant ship, my mood was back to being on high. The point of travel is to see things differently, explore, chase adventure with a reckless abandon, and find new ways to pursue those things. Standing at the loading area of the ship, an Italian officer took my passport and told me I would be getting it back in Spain. It was a bit alarming, giving up my passport, my identity, to a stranger for that length of time, but it didn't matter. I ascended the cramped stairway leading up to the multiple stories of the small city on the water until I reached its highest point, the windy top deck overlooking the city of Genova. The ship sounded its horn and we made our way out of the harbor, steaming headlong into the Ligurian Sea bound for Spain. Like always, I had chosen the cheapest possible mode of transport, which meant no cabin and no bed. Instead, I was asleep with the other miscreants in the theater room, using the plush red chairs as a sleeping apparatus. Once I found the chair to my liking and claimed it by tying a sleeve of my jacket to one of its arms, I roamed the ship, taking in the unique environment. Perhaps 80% of the passengers were of African descent. Most, it seemed, were Moroccan, and the rest belonged to the rest of the north coast of the continent. The dining area was a smorgasbord of characters. Some tables held dark-skinned men playing cards shouting loudly at one another. Others sat Italian bikers with leathers and patched arms, cross-looking intimidating. Women held children. Some smoked in the bow of the ship. Others drank beer after beer from the fully stocked bar. I sat in a corner with my notebook, jotting all of this, drinking deep from a bottle of cheap Italian wine I had packed. With night upon us, I ventured back to my red plush chair. The hallway floors were littered with dark-skinned feet sticking out of blankets, most snoring loudly, others twisting and scratching in their sleep. Men were walking around in their underwear with towels draped over their shoulders and some were on their knees praying quietly to themselves. A similar scene was taking place in the theater room. I found my red bed 
tied my backpack tightly to my wrist and laid across two of the chairs, shutting my eyes. The night was long and sleep escaped me for most of it. At 6.12 an announcement came over the loudspeaker, notifying us we were going to make land soon. I made my way to the main lobby and noticed a tenfold increase in the amount of white faces I had not seen before. It seemed those people with white faces were the ones who could afford, or at least were the ones who saw fit to purchase the cabins. They were the ones who avoided the common areas, for I had walked every inch of that ship the night before and hadn't seen many. The elevator doors opened and we all funneled in, color of skin and nationality not mattering, and we descended to the bottom decks. We were given our passports, but only a fraction of the ship's occupants walked onto the docks. As we got onto our shuttle, I looked back at the ship and many dark faces clutched the railing of the ship at her top decks. They are looking down on us and us up at them. The ship was bound for North Africa, and so were they, for whatever reasons. Our shuttle took us to the end of the harbor. I got off and walked amidst the shadows of palm trees in the early morning air of November. I was in a new country, and my mind was set on traveling north. End of chapter.